You know, throughout the years of ministry that I've been a pastor, I've heard a lot of sad stories. I have sat across the table or looking through the bars in a prison ministry and talking to prisoners who give me their stories, their their history, and talking about how they ended up in there. I've sat across the desk from a couple who are going through a divorce or been divorced and all of the stuff that they're going through. And I've sat across the desk talking to people who have gone through bankruptcy because of foolish decisions that they've made with their money and uh, ventures that they've entered into that they shouldn't. I've talked with numerous people who are struggling with addiction, all kinds of addiction. And all of these people have made a mess of their lives. And as they sit across from me and we are talking, you can just see it on their faces. They're wondering, how did I get here? You know, how did I end up in prison? How did I end up in a divorce? How did I end up in the situation that I find myself? How did I do it? And if you listen to the stories long enough and often enough, what you're going to see is this, that every one of them made a series of wrong choices. It began with one decision, one choice that they made in which they did something that was contrary to Scripture. And nothing happened, and that seemed to go okay, and they didn't think anything about it, and they went on to another one and another one, and pretty soon they find themselves in these situations simply because they chose to live a life that was contrary to the uh, instruction that we find in Scripture. It boils down to two choices. There's always going to be the easy way. Uh, the, the way that we think would be the right decision, the right thing to do, the way everybody else does it, the way that it seems easy and attractive to us. And then the opposite of that is that there's God's way. That doesn't mean that God's way isn't easy because sometimes it's easy, sometimes it's difficult, but nonetheless the choices are there. It's the easy way, we'll call it, or the way of the world, or doing it God's way. And often when I sit across from people and hear their stories and see the mess that they've gotten themselves into, it becomes very evident that what they did was they made a foolish decision somewhere along the line. And it just led to another one and another one. And now they're sitting there thinking to themselves, how did I end up here? And it's very simple. The choices that you made have had a lot to do with it. Now, that doesn't mean that every situation is like that. Some things you're have been done and you had no control over. I understand that. But by and large, the majority of situations where a person's life has just really been shipwrecked, it's because of ungodly choices that they've made somewhere along the way. Now, this is taught throughout the Scripture, that living the way that the Lord would have you to live, we'll call it living God's way, is going to make life better for you. You're going to enjoy it more. You're going to be satisfied. You're going to be fulfilled. You're going to be happier. You're going to be blessed if you do it God's way. That's the, really what it boils down to in the Christian life. We have a decision to make, either live our lives the way that God has instructed us and reap the benefits of that or live our lives the way we want to, which is usually the easiest way out, and reap the benefits of those decisions as well. Now, this, this is taught throughout the Bible, and um, it is taught in the teaching of the disciples. It is taught also in the examples that we see in the Old Testament of men like David and Solomon and all the other kings of, of Israel who made choices that were ungodly and reaped the benefits of that or the consequences of that, and those that live for the Lord and reap the benefits of that. So this is not something new. We've 
we're all aware of it. We all know it. And whenever we live our lives God's way, it is better for us. It's better now and 10, 15, 20 years from now. Life gets even better as we live it the way that God has instructed us to do. It just seems sometimes as we look at that and contemplate the choices, we look at that and we think to ourselves, well, that doesn't make sense to us. That doesn't seem like it's the right thing to do. But when God says to do something, it is always the right thing to do. And you and me as believers have got to come to that realization. We've got to make that decision that it is wiser by far to live a life in accordance with what God has instructed than to try to live a life that's different. So today what I want to do is to talk to you about that truth, that living life God's way is better. We're going to be looking at an odd passage of Scripture. Now, odd in the sense that you're going to read this passage of Scripture and you're going to think, well, how do you get that out of that passage? It's going to refer to a miracle that Jesus did. Excuse me. And in that miracle, we're going to see the teaching of what I'm telling you today. Now, the miracle is going to be the, the first miracle that Jesus ever did when he turned the water into wine. But before we get there, let me tell you a little bit about miracles. You know, miracles are recorded in Scripture for us in order to teach us things about God, things that we may not have known otherwise or to illustrate something that maybe we do know. For example, when Jesus walked on the water, he was demonstrating that he had power over the natural laws of physics, gravity. Who can walk on water? That's just unnatural. But in doing so, he demonstrated to the disciples that this is who I am and this is what I'm able to do. When the storm was about to sink the disciples in their boat when Jesus was asleep, Jesus stood up and he said, Be quiet! The waves died down, the wind ceased to blow, and it was calm. And he demonstrated to the disciples that, you know what? I have control and power over nature. And that was something that they never realized. You know, it's one thing to believe that you're the Son of God, but it's another thing when you finally come to the realization that this is a power that you have, and we may not have known that before. He had power over sickness and demonstrated it numerous times when he healed the lame and the the blind and so forth. He had power over Satan and the demons because he cast them out everywhere he went and controlled them and told them what to do, and they obeyed him. He had power over death when he raised up Lazarus. He demonstrated that in that miracle of raising Lazarus from the dead. All through the New Testament, you find Jesus doing miracles. You find him doing things that demonstrate something about him, some truth that the, the disciples and those that were watching were able to see and they began to understand and realize who he was and what he was doing. Now, I want to take you to the first miracle that he ever did that at least is recorded in the Scripture. Uh, that miracle was when he turned the water to wine. And I want to begin, I'm going to, we're going to look at uh, John chapter 2, and we're going to go through verses 1 through 11, but I want to begin with verse 11. I want you to see this. In verse 11, he says this, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Now, this is the first one, and this is the one that was recorded, and um, it says that he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. They saw something they'd never seen before, and it caused them to respond in faith. 
Now, their faith is strengthened and changed throughout the ministry because you always see the disciples believed in him, you see. They're believing something new. They're, they're understanding something fresh about him. I want to jump down now in the story and begin, or jump back to, to verse 1 in this passage. John chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. We're going to look at that. It says, On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, You do whatever he tells you to do. I want to back up here and let's look at this and pick it apart a little bit. There's a wedding in Cana, and Jesus' mother Mary is already there. And then it adds, it says, and Jesus and the disciples were also invited. Now, the implication is this, that somehow Mary had something to do with this wedding. She was somehow involved in helping out, and we don't know what that was. It may have been a relative. It could have been, you know, when the wine runs out, she's concerned about it. It wasn't her responsibility unless she was part of the planning of this wedding. So somehow she was involved in this. And then it says that Jesus and the disciples, they were also invited. And then there, were, there arose a problem, and the problem was this, that they ran out of wine. Now, why is that such a problem? In that culture, when you had a wedding, it was a feast. The bridegroom provided it, he paid for it, and it was his responsibility to carry the party on. And sometimes these wedding feasts or ceremonies would last for a week or more. People would come from miles and miles away. You figure somebody takes a two or three day or more journey to get there. It's your responsibility since you invited them to the wedding to provide for them. So you feed them and you give them wine and you take care of them while they're there. If you run out of wine in the middle of this, it is an insult. It is a humiliating situation. So we read that and we think, well, what's the big deal? Just go home. Well, this was serious, and this was a, a, a problem. And Jesus' mother comes to him, and she says to him, they're out of wine. Now, that raises some questions, at least in my mind. What is it that she expected him to do? What did she expect him to do? And why did she tell him that? Did she expect Jesus to provide wine miraculously? Now, I think she did. I can't prove it, but it seems like the implication is that she expected him to do something. He wasn't going to go get it. There was none to be found, and we're out. Now, that leads me to another question. What had she seen him do in the past? See, this is always a question people have. When Jesus was growing up, he didn't start his ministry till he was 30 years old. Well, did he not ever do something miraculous in those first 30 years? I believe he probably did. His public ministry didn't begin until 30, but probably at home he did things that his mother just marveled at. And so she comes to him and she says, look, they're out of wine. And his response was this, woman, why are you involving me? Why are you telling me this? What is it that you want me to do? Because you know what? My hour has not yet come. It's not time for me to be revealed to Israel yet. It's not time for me to start my ministry yet. But yet she wanted him to do something. 
so much so that she tells the servant, she said, I'm his mother, and I know he's going to do it, so you do whatever he tells you to do. That's, you know, a lot of boldness there. But she did. She knew her son. Now, here's what happened. You know the story, but let's look at some of the details. The next uh, three or four verses, it says in verse 6, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now, guys, stop right there. All you got to do is a little math, and you'll find out. He's talking about 120 to 180 gallons of water that will be turned to wine. That's a lot of wine. This is a huge wedding party. And he, when he did it, he did it all. Look at the next verse. Jesus said to his servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have served or you have saved the best till now. Now think about this. The master of the ceremonies here, the coordinator, is the guy that probably coordinates all the food and all the festivities during that week or however long it lasted. And so he tells them, he said, you go and draw some of this water out of here, which has now become wine, you take it to the master of ceremonies out there and you let him taste it. Now, nobody knew what had happened except the servants. This is not a miracle where Jesus is saying, you know, basically, ta-da, you know, I'm God. Because nobody knew but the servants and probably the disciples. So it wasn't a public display to draw attention to himself. It was simply correcting a problem that had occurred and doing this for his mother's sake. And he makes 120 or 80 gallons of wine for the party. And the, the key or the point to this, now listen very carefully, okay, because the point is very important. It's not that he performed the miracle. The point of this whole thing is in the response of the wedding planner or the man in charge of the banquet. Because, you see, he tasted the wine and he marvels at how well it tastes or how good it tasted. And he, draws, he pulls the, the bridegroom aside because the bridegroom, was he assumes, responsible for it. And he says to him, he said, most weddings, here's what they do. They'll give you a little bit of the good stuff at the beginning when everybody's happy and nobody's paying attention. He said, then they bring out the poor quality wine. They'll water it down, dilute it down to make it go further. Because things are winding down, everybody's had enough to drink, they don't care. He said, but I taste this. And he said, i got to tell you, he said, you have saved the absolute best wine until last. And this is recorded this way so that we understand what it's teaching. Because the point of this is, is very simple. And that is this, that we learned this lesson. That what God provides is better than anything else. What God provides for you and what God gives to you is better than anything that you're going to get on your own or get elsewhere. 
Now let's take the point of the, of the miracle and draw an application that applies to us more specifically, okay? And the application would be something like this. That when we live a life God's way, our lives are better, we are happier, and we are blessed. In other words, what God does for you is better than anything that you could accomplish or get on your own doing it your way. Now let's begin to think this through because these people that I mentioned at the beginning sitting in front of me or sitting behind bars in a prison, they didn't get that. They didn't understand that truth and they ignored it. And they decided that they were going to do life their way, which was either simpler, easier, made more sense, more convenient, whatever. But they did it and they suffered the consequences. Now, I'm talking to us as believers out here. I'm not talking about the unbelieving world. I would expect nothing different from them. But for us as believers, we've got to come to this understanding and can be convicted of this, that I have, I'm constantly facing choices in life. And I constantly have to make a choice of what I'm going to do tomorrow and the next day and the day after that. And I sometimes make ungodly choices. Because I think that it's better, it's easier, it's my way, it makes sense, or it's more attractive. And over and over again, and this is what Jesus is trying to teach them right at the outset of his ministry, is that, listen, what I've got is better for you. And what I will give you is better for you. You've got to make the choice, though. And as a believer, as you sit here this morning, I want to run you through some examples here and give you some illustrations of how you may have been in the process of your life making ungodly choices. And you need to come to the realization that you're settling for something that God never intended for you to have, second best. Because what God offers you is far better if you'll just take it. Let's start with our marriages. I've had people sit across from me and whine and cry and agonize over their failed marriage. There's anger, there's hurt, there's shame, there's all kinds of things. It doesn't take long to retrace their steps and to retrace the marriage and to see that what they have been doing is choosing ungodly behavior. Instead of showing love like the scriptures teach, they're showing selfishness a lack of respect. Sometimes they're unfaithful in their marriage. Instead of being best friends the way that the Lord would have us to be and working together to raise a family and be a testimony to the world about uh, what Christian marriage is all about, instead of doing that, they tend to get selfish and go their own way, do their own thing. And then when the marriage falls apart, one party gets tired of it and leaves or has an affair or runs off and does something then all of a sudden, they want somebody to fix it. And like I said earlier, it's very easy to retrace the steps and find out that you were given choices every step of the way. You could choose to love your mate and treat that mate with respect and care, to lift them up on a pedestal the way that God would have you to and honor them the way the Bible teaches. You could be faithful to your spouse these are your choices, and yet over and over again you chose the easy way out or something that was more attractive because you thought that would make you happy. 
only to find that now your marriage is destroyed. God's way was better, wasn't it? It would have been had you done it. Had you followed it, it would have been better for you. Here's another illustration. Addiction. Boy, addiction is a big thing in our culture, especially in our community here that we live in now. Drug addiction, alcohol addiction, sex addiction, you name it. Um, Our people struggle with it. We have, you know, the CTR group that meets back here and the folks that come through there, they're struggling. Our community is riddled with some of this stuff. And you trace the steps back and you begin to discover that somewhere back in your past, you began making ungodly decisions. You were faced with two choices and you chose to take the easy way out. You chose to numb your pain with alcohol or drugs. You chose to get, get past your hurt feelings and your, your feelings of inadequacy by having an affair. You find yourself now addicted to things that you shouldn't be addicted to. How did you get there? It didn't just happen. There were choices involved, and you didn't believe. You didn't believe that God's way was better. See, that's the problem. You thought that you could do it yourself. You thought that you knew what to do. You made choices that were wrong. And here's the sad part about it. I've had people who will sit there in front of me and say to me or try to get me to believe, you know what, but I'm a victim. I was raised in an abusive home, so I therefore have permission, if you will, to live an ungodly life because of what I've gone through. I had an abusive marriage. Therefore, I'm excused from righteousness. I'm excused from doing what God wants because I'm different. The situation is different. And God says, no, you're not. There are reasons, granted, there may be things that contributed, but you're still accountable to do it God's way. We keep wanting to make excuses. You know, I'm a victim. I'm struggling with an illness, my alcoholism. No, it's not. We can debate this all day long, but the bottom line is this. God says you're accountable. I was born this way. Oh, goodness, how many times have we heard that? You know, there are, there are biological reasons that may contribute to things. There are social reasons that contribute to things. The way that we were raised, our parents. We can say all of these things, of course they contribute to the way we do things, the way we are. But God says there's still a better way for you to choose along the way, and you've chosen the wrong way. And the thing that makes the difference in all of this is the Spirit of God living in you as a believer who gives you the ability to have the strength to make these choices if you'll just step out in faith and do it. But we don't. We'll take the easy way out every time. And God says, my way's better. What I will give you is far better than what you're going to find doing it your way. You know, we talk about our parenting skills. I've had parents who have wept over their children and the decisions that their children have made and the things that have happened in the lives of their children and the way they've ended up. It doesn't take much to go back and to find out that you were too busy to be involved in their lives. You were too busy or it was just easy for you not to bring them to church. It was easier not for you not to take time with them. 
not to go to that ball game, not to spend time with them, not to be involved in the things they're doing. It was easier. So you did it. It was easier not to discipline them when they did things wrong, but just let it go. It was easier not to give them instruction the way that I should have as a parent. It was easier to do that. And all the time, God presented to you choices. That you take me at my word and do it my way and raise your children the way I've instructed you in Scripture and it will be better. Or do it your way and see what happens. Boy, uncontrolled emotions. There's one that we struggle with as Christians. Boy, our anger, our unforgiveness. You know, we get angry at things and we think to ourselves, I have a right to be angry. Because of what so-and-so did. And you know what? Let me tell you something. I would agree with you that there are things that happen in life that people do to us and shame on them for having done it. And yes, you're right for responding with anger because that's a natural response. But God says, wait a minute, whoa, whoa. He says, don't you let the sun go down on that anger. You deal with this. Because God knows that if you travel down that path, it's going to end in your destruction. And so then God comes along and says, here's the choice and here's my way. If you take my way, you're going to be happier and it would be better for you. And my way is this, that you forgive even your enemies. Man, talk about hard. I just assume take the easy way out and just hold a grudge and be bitter. And God says to you and me that in the end, that's going to destroy you. It won't destroy them. God's way is always better. And it's better, like I mentioned before, because this is the dynamic that you and I as believers often ignore or disregard or maybe just don't take it for the value that it is. That living within you as a believer is the Spirit of God. And the Spirit of God comes with what the Bible calls the fruit of the Spirit. In other words, God says, I put my Spirit in you when you put your faith in me. And he will generate within you fruit. You know, the things that are mentioned there in Galatians, we've talked about them before, like love. That's an emotion in that passage. He's talking about an emotion. That I will generate within you love for people that are unlovable. If you will show love. Now, guys, listen, okay? See, here's where we make our mistake as believers. We think, well, I can't do that because I don't feel like it. I don't want to do it. And God says to you and me over and over again that if you will step out in faith and obey me, then my spirit will change you from the inside. And so in faith, you reach out because you want to do it God's way and you demonstrate kindness and love to people that you don't really feel that for because your heart is hurt, it's wounded. And God says, when you do it my way, that I will begin to change your heart and I will create within you love where love did not exist. Peace, that's a fruit of the Spirit. Man. My, my life is in turmoil. My heart is hurting. I'm, I'm, I'm wounded. I, all of these things. So I seek some sort of relief in a bottle or in drugs or in some illicit affair or something to make me feel better. 
God says, no, no, don't do it that way. If you do it my way, it'll be better for you because I will give you peace. And what you're out there trying to find, I'll give it to you. If you just walk with me. Joy, my goodness. How many of us really experience joy in our lives? You know, there's so much in this world to drag you down. And God says, you're going to seek it out there on your own and you're going to fail. Or you can follow me, trust me, and let me generate that within you. The list goes on and on. That's the beauty of being a Christian. Because you have within you the power, not from you, but from the Lord, to change your life and to make it better. And this is why when Jesus changed the water to wine, he was demonstrating to the people as he began now to come out publicly that what I'm going to give you, what I'm going to present to you, what I'm going to offer you is better than anything you've ever experienced if you'll just take it. You know, there's an interesting passage. It's in Jeremiah. Let me read it to you. It's just one verse. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13. He's This is Jeremiah, the prophet, God speaking to Israel through the prophet Jeremiah. And here's what he says. He says, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Now, you know, we have a tendency, we'll read through a verse like that and not think about it, but think what he's saying. I come to you, my people, and I'm offering you a better way of life. I am the spring of living water. I will renew you and refresh you, and it will be better if you'll just walk with me. But you know what you did? You rejected that, and then you went out and dug your own source of water, your own cistern. And you know what the problem with that? Your cistern is cracked, and it can't hold water, and in the end you're going to be miserable. Every time. Every time you and I choose to walk away from God, every time we choose to do it our way, it fails. And in that miracle of the water and the wine, Jesus is saying to you and me, my way is better. It will fulfill you. It will satisfy you. You will be blessed if you walk with me. Every time we do that, we quench the Spirit. We wonder, well, why can't the Spirit do things in our heart and change us from the inside when we're walking contrary to that? Because the Bible teaches that when you and I walk out here on our own and do our own thing, that we are quenching the Spirit inside of us. And God will not do that. One more passage, very quickly, just a couple verses. Let me read this to you. It's in Isaiah 55. It goes along with what I just read. In verses 1 through 2, this is again the prophet Isaiah now talking to the nation of Israel. Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me, and eat what is good, and you will delight in the richest of fare. Same thing that we read before. The same thing that is taught to us in that parable of the water and the wine. You come here to me, and I will give you what is better than you ever expected 
God knows your pain. God knows your needs. God knows your fears. God knows everything about you. And God says to you that when you quit making excuses, when you own up, when you admit and confess what you're doing, and you stop trying to blame everybody else and say, God, I'm in this predicament because of my own ungodly choices. God says, now we can start. What I'm going to offer you and what I'm going to do for you is better than anything else in this life, but you're going to have to take the first step and you're going to have to walk with me. You're going to have to obey me and do it my way. It may not make sense to you, and here's what I want you to understand about this as, as we, we get started with this this idea of change. And that is that it won't always be easy in the beginning. Doing it God's way is not easy in the beginning. Now now watch, I've given you this illustration before. Let's say you're walking along here and you come to a fork in the road. And one, there's a sign that goes to the right that says this is God's way of living. There's a sign that goes to the left and the left fork that says this is your way of living. Whenever you take God's way, It is always difficult in the beginning, but it gets easier down the road. Whenever you take your way, it is always easy in the beginning and attractive. But down the road, it's disastrous. So you've got to know that. You've got to understand that. That whenever God says, I want you to do it my way, it's not going to be appealing at the beginning. It's not going to look like fun. It's not going to look easy. You're going to say, I can't do it. But if you'll just step out and begin to take charge, make godly decisions, believe me, it'll get better. I want you to understand this, that it's going to take a lot of faith. It takes faith for you to, to, to accept or to believe that a way that may not be attractive to you is the best thing for you to do. It kind of goes against the flesh. It goes against everything that we want, our, our desires, But you're going to have to think with your mind here, not your emotions. You're going to have to say, in effect, this is what the Bible teaches. That if I will be this kind of a husband, my marriage can be restored. That if I will treat my wife this way, then our relationship can change. This is what the Bible says, that if I spend time with my children and raise them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, they'll grow up to be better people. I've got to believe that. And the list goes on and on. Because you see, when it says God's way, it will always seem like it is ridiculous in the light of what everybody else thinks. But it is always worth it in the end. Always. If you'll just do it. I want to read you a sad story. It has to do with the famous American author, Ernest Hemingway. He wrote such books as The Sun Also Rises, Farewell to Arms, The Old Man of the Sea, For Whom the Bell Tolls. You've heard these, you've probably read them in school. He was a great author, but he was what we call a hedonist. In other words, he lived for himself, he lived for the flesh, and he did things his way. This is a story about him, and it says this, From his early years, Hemingway went after everything life had to offer. He drove an ambulance during the First World War. He was involved in the Spanish Civil War. He was a reporter. Everyone from bullfighters to authors sought his friendship. Hemingway pursued the natural 
wines of life. But there came a day when the wine ran out. In his biography of the great writer, Carlos Baker records these tragic final words. Now listen. Sunday morning dawned bright and cloudless. Ernest awoke early as always. He put on his red emperor's robe and he padded softly down the carpeted stairway. The early sunlight lay in pools on the living room floor. He had noticed that the guns were locked up in the basement, but the keys, as he well knew, were on the window ledge above the kitchen sink. He tiptoed down the basement stairs and unlocked the storage room. It smelled as dank and musty as the grave. He chose a double-barrel shotgun with a tight choke. He had used it for years for hunting pigeons. He took some shells from one of the boxes in the storage room, closed and locked the door, and climbed the basement stairs. If he saw the bright light of the day, the sunshine outside, it did not deter him. He crossed to the living room to the front foyer, a shrine-like entryway with oak-paneled walls and a floor of linoleum tile. He slipped in two shells, lowered the gun butt carefully to the floor, leaned forward, and pressed both barrels against his forehead, just above the eyebrows. And then he pulled both triggers. Now here's a guy that if there's anybody that ever had everything going for him, an accomplished author, lots of money, lots of world recognition, sought pleasure in every imaginable way that he could, and in the end, decided to blow his head off. Why? Because at some point in his life, he realized that everything that he built his life on was empty. Couldn't satisfy. And it was a waste, just like Solomon did. And unfortunately, he took his own life. Numerous people will do that from time to time because at some point they realize that they've spent their lives on something that didn't really provide happiness like they thought. And all the while, God says, as always, you have two choices. My way is better. And my way will make you happy, bring you joy, satisfy you, and bless you if you'll just do it. So you see, we come to the end of this message and you and I have a decision. As you think back over your life and you look at the things and the choices that you've made and the way you're living life, you're going to have to come to the conclusion that there may be things in your life that are not the best. And you travel back and you see the decisions that you made along the way, the choices, and you realize how you got there. It's never too late until you pull the trigger, but it's never too late to change if you just don't do it. But until you're convinced that what God offers you is better, you never will. So you see, this is the point that I want to drive home to you. God's way is better 
but you have to take it. And that's what I want you to do today. I want you to make a commitment to whatever it is in your life that is in shambles, it's a mess, that you will begin to backtrack and do it differently and do it God's way. And I promise you this, that within time, it won't happen immediately, but within time, you will see a distinct difference in the situation because the Bible teaches very clearly God's way is better. If you're here this morning and you are questioning your salvation or have never put your faith in Christ, I want to read you one last verse. It's a verse we've seen many times. It's in Titus chapter 3, verse 5. It says that he saved us, talking about Jesus, he saved us not because of righteous things we have done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Jesus died on the cross to pay for your sins and mine. He paid the penalty and he provides us with eternal life. The only condition is that you reach out and take it. By faith, you put your faith in Jesus Christ and God gives you as a free gift eternal life. You know, if you've never done that, I would like nothing more than to talk with you. I'm always available. I'll talk with you about that anytime. If you have doubts about it, let me, let me help you with that, okay? God loves you. He really does. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we bow here before you this morning, Father, I pray for each one of us, myself included, that every day that we face choices, that we will choose the better way. Father, knowing full well that if we do, that our lives will be different. They will be fulfilled and enriched and satisfying. And Father, we will experience joy and peace and love and patience and all the things that the Spirit has to offer because we no longer quench Him. Father, may we be that kind of people. Not only are we saved by faith, but Father, that we walk with You every day. Father, we want our lives to be better. And I pray for that for each and every one of us. In Jesus' name, amen.